3CR would like to acknowledge the Kulin Nations, true owners, caretakers and custodians of the land from which we broadcast. 3CR pays respect to elders past, present and emerging of the Kulin Nation. We recognise their unceded sovereignty. This is 3CR Breakfast. Alternative news, analysis and current affairs. Monday to Friday, 7am to 8.30am. Good morning, everybody. Uh, welcome to the early edition of Monday Breakfast, starting at 6.58am this morning. I hope you've all tuned in early. Oh my, my name is Jackson. I'm in the studio with Lauren. Welcome, Lauren, from Tuesday Breakfast. I wish I had an applause track to play, but I don't. We have one on Tuesday Breakfast. I've heard it. It's <laughs> a bigger budget on Tuesday. <laughs> yeah. Thank you for having me. Well, they just they just get better supporters. That's mm. the reality. You know, it's a free market. We could go out there and hustle some supporters, James. Good morning, James. Good morning, everybody. I hope everyone had a good weekend. It was um, look, you know. We'll get into the nitty-gritty of the election, but for me, it was pretty good to see uh, what felt like a wholesale rejection of mm. this campaign of racism and homophobia and fear and division that the Liberals were so intent on uh, continuing to run. So it was nice to see that red wave, even across seats like Hawthorne and oh, Brighton. It was and beautiful, wasn't it? Very unexpected. <laughs> um, so, yeah, we can talk a bit more about that in Alternative News. But what did you guys do for your election evening activities well i think it just it is one of it'd have to be i remember a few years ago there was a new south wales election in which the liberals won and there was a complete wipeout this is shaping to be very close to that it, at the moment the labor party have 52 seats and liberals have 18 i mean 18 seats like it's just it actually feels unreal doesn't it so minibus i think <laughs> <I've been heard. laughs> oh goodness <laughs> Um, but yeah, yeah no. Not even a classroom under liberal education mm. policy. <laughs> not even half a classroom. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yes, it's good quite news. good, isn't it? But I think it, what it was interesting I found is how much the Liberal Party seemed very confident in the days leading up to the election when nobody else seemed to think that they'll win, but that kind of, I guess, you know, they, they had, a, I guess, you know, you have to go into a contest thinking you're a chance to win, but they seemed shocked on the night and I think very confident leading up to it. Yeah, and there's been, I would argue, a sense of denial from the Liberal leadership even mm. since the loss, mm. you know, when put to them that this has something to do with the, the bloodletting at federal level or this is a wholesale rejection of these politics of fear and, in, you know, it's been described as the most progressive state in the country and the Liberal Party needs to change its attitude to meet the expectations of Victorian voters. But there's been, you know, wholesale denial from the federal government of their involvement and even denial from the Liberal Party that they chose the wrong issues to run the campaign on. Namely, law and order was their one major issue. They didn't roll out a a health policy. They didn't really Mm. roll out education policy. So Mm. it's... It's It's the arrogance of... of, um Conservative men, though it really is like there's there's this lack of imagination when it comes to experiences or a lack of understanding about other people's experiences. And certainly, look, the Labor Party is obviously um, there are a lot of men running around in the Labor Party, and they're mostly white people. Um, but the Liberal Party is to, it, it's like they can't imagine anybody else having a different experience. Um, mm. And we see that in so many ways. But, yeah, that's why I think that they walk in so confident because mm. 
to them, African gangs are a problem and mm. all of that, you know. Mm. Mm. Well, I think there was some. They certainly attributed a lot of the blame to the federal um, Liberal Party and to, you know, the removal of Malcolm Turnbull. There's been a lot of things. Some Liberal MPs have been, Liberal um, members have been talking about the fact that um, the inaction on climate change, the way that uh, Malcolm Turnbull's was handled over that kind of, over that issue. Um, and, and, you know, Jeff Kennett has obviously come down pretty hard on trying to remove a lot of the people from the Liberal Party, but, you know, any kind of loss and, um, Jeff tries to remove one loss for Hawthorne, he was trying to remove Alistair Clarkson, so. But it is, it's that the people, um, it seems like in Victoria anyway, looking at how it's all gone, it's that rejection of the move to the right, mm. which was exemplified in Malcolm Turnbull's. Um, mm. yeah, very interesting. It is. I would like to talk a little bit more about the election, but I'll just give our listeners a quick rundown of what's coming up on the show. We are focusing almost completely on the election result and speaking to a number of different people uh, who will have different thoughts about what went down. So coming up at about quarter past seven this morning after Alternative News, we'll speak to Lucy Honan, who's a member of the Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice and also the AEU, about uh, what this election means for uh, people working in the education sector. There's obviously been a lot of... Uh, a lot of investment announced, uh, not just in the previous four years, but in the four years ahead as well. So we'll have mm. a chat about that. Um, so 7.30, we've got Sue Bolton from the Victorian Socialists, an interesting campaign from them, uh, one that was watched closely by Monday Breakfast and at 3CR. Mm. Uh, so it'd be great to talk to Sue to kind of unpack uh, how they feel about the preferences because... yeah. For example, in the northern metropolitan region where they were trying to get someone elected to the upper house, they actually polled about 5% of the primary vote mm. uh, compared to Darren Hinch's Justice Party, which had 0.5%. Mm. But after Glenn Drury's work is done, it will be uh, Darren Hinch's party member that does get into that seat. Um, and they did very well in uh, Broadmeadows, I think. Jan yeah. polled 7.8% the yeah. first preference vote. Very yeah. interesting endorsement of... Um, door-knocking grassroots activism, I think, was Broadmeadows, this election. Really interesting mm. stuff coming out of there. Mm. Mm. Uh, we Hopefully we'll have Kelly from Ruminations in to talk about uh, the homelessness response to um, and, and housing, uh, which has been a big issue. It was a bit of a shame to see... Um, Martin Foley returned with a bigger majority considering the discussion that's been had around housing and the mm. plan to sell off public housing. I noticed uh, Anthony Albanese appeared on, the na- appeared on the National Wrap last night and specifically said that Martin Foley would deliver social housing, which is a little different to public mm. housing, very well chosen words. So hopefully uh, she's in to have a chat with us about that. Uh, and then after 8 o'clock, that'll kind of take us through the first hour, uh, we'll be talking with Tim Reid, who is the Brunswick Greens candidate Brunswick still too close to call yeah. at this stage. Seventy votes, I think, was separating he and Isn't Cindy that, O'Connor. Oh, gosh, he probably hasn't slept. He'll <laughs> <laughs> be, be on a knife's edge. So it'd be good to chat with him. And then we have Danny Pearson, who is the uh, victorious ALP candidate for Essendon. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's in at quarter past eight. Definitely returned. As far as I know. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I think part of this red uh, tsunami that we are seeing. But maybe we'll have a bit more of a deep analysis of the election. Uh, all of that's coming up, so stay tuned. Uh, but I think it is time for alternative news. Some folks know about it, some don't. Some will learn to shout it, some won't. But sooner or later, baby, here's a ditty. Say you're going to have to get right down to the real nitty-gritty. Let's get right down. 
So they were pretty amazing election results. Mm. Not just the Liberals' appalling showing, which gladdens the heart, such a clear rejection of their <laughs> racist, divisive, homophobic project, but also the big backstep by the Greens and the really kind of dark places of that campaign uh, mm. ended up. Uh, I want to talk a bit more about that in a minute. I mean, I think a lot of our listeners would be really happy to see the Libs get such a thorough shellacking. Uh, and while I'm glad that Andrews has another term to continue a spend on public transport, safe injecting rooms, uh, public schooling, queer friendly resources in school, etc., it's also important to remember some of the drawbacks mm. of this government and their current political program. Andrews still plans to double the size of the police force and continue to arm them with really frightening uh, anti-rally weaponry, particularly crowd dispersal, yeah. riot gear, uh, add to this the anti-association laws, their plan to open new prisons, including youth prisons. It's not a great picture. Mm. What are your thoughts on four more years of an Andrews government? I think Andrews um, is a really easy win for white progressives. Um, I think there's so much about him to love in terms of, I don't want to call it low-hanging fruit because it is stuff that's really important to people. Mm. Family Violence Royal Commission was a huge thing mm. um, for myself that, to, you know, to hang my hat on in terms of being glad he's back. Um, and like you say, there are a number of spending and education and public transport, super important. Um, but I think, I think that this is a perfect example of um, us seeing Indigenous people and people of colour being thrown under the bus by white progressives again, mm. um, because the reality is that the communities that are over-policed and over-incarcerated in Australia are black and brown communities, um, particularly Indigenous communities. Um, and when it comes to things like mandatory sentencing um, and all of that, it's migrant populations who bear the brunt of it um, and sex workers and queer people and mm. all of these communities that exist, um, that, well, that don't exist, that are pushed to outside of mainstream progressive thought. Mm. And so I think uh, personally, while, again, I agree, I was heartened to see the, I love the use of the word shellacking, <laughs> that the libs copped on Saturday, um, I was saddened that, we didn't have people like Lydia Thorpe and Huang Trung returned, mm, that Fiona Patton wasn't returned. You know, th these are people who's, who are so community-minded and whose experiences are different to those of the mainstream progressive voices. Um, and so to me, the rejection of the Libs is a win, but I don't think now the makeup of the houses that we see is mm. a win for progressive views in this state. The Greens is a really interesting one, isn't it? Because, mm. I mean, seven out of their eight upper house members, I think, were women um, yep. going into this election. Um, you know, Lydia Thorpe, the one Indigenous woman in Parliament, first and the only. Yep. How are we going to have a discussion about treaty without an Indigenous voice yeah. in Parliament? It's, it's um, mind-boggling. And I hope, like, I hope we get to talk to Danny Pearson about the ALP's plans in terms of perhaps recruiting um, Indigenous ALP members later because how you can how a solid part of your platform going into an election can be treaty negotiation and you haven't thought to or haven't openly been seen to have thought to um, welcome Indigenous members to your party well or put them up for pre-selection exactly. or these type of things and yeah. this is that this is that invisibility of certain communities again mm. the performance of the Greens was you know very concerning for a lot of a lot of progressives. You know, there's been some um, accusations that parts of the Labor Party were perhaps distributing some of this historical material from mm -hmm. certain candidates. It was very disappointing to see uh, 
Jill Milsom or Joe Milsom, I think, who put up the posts about uh, you know shoplifting, kind of petty crime, calling Michaela Cash, you know what? Uh, and Joanna Nilsson. Joanna Nilsson. Mm. My apologies. Um, and she was she was lost her job essentially, mm. mm-hmm. and then Angus McAlpine didn't, you mm. know, bizarrely, um, considering the comments that he had made. Uh, mm. The, you know, just this tumult of, of terrible things. But you can also go all the way back. I mean, the organising done by um, the Vixen Collective against Kathleen Meltzer, you know, there's, there's been some decisions made by the Greens with their candidates um, going right back to the nomination of Kathleen Meltzer, who openly uh, was for more criminalisation of Victoria's mm. sex industry, um, you know, another often marginalised group. Uh, and and it was, I think it was, um, you know, fair that, that she lost the Richmond seat, yeah. considering and she, she backflipped on some of her positions on the Nordic model late in the campaign. Well, she didn't late, say she didn't. She just said she wouldn't vote for them, not mm. her personal preference. Mm. But I think it's... Um, I don't want to say people were sending the Greens a message because I don't think that's fair to blanket say, but um, people don't like hypocrisy in, in progressive spaces and the Greens has in this I think in this campaign shown a lot of hypocrisy um, as you say Joanna Nelson losing her job and Angus Alpine keeping his was I don't think I've been more angry about state politics since mm. the Kennett years like <laughs> that was horrible mm. um, yeah and I don't know there was some interesting analysis done people were um, people don't think the Greens are as good on on state issues that like that came down to a big thing that people just think that the Andrews government is better on state issues so it's well, been a while since the greens had a a government with progressive credentials to to battle against as mm. well mm. Mm. and i think that because the andrews government has run on a left wing sort of platform and i think a little bit to do with the victorian socialist role as well it's really left no kind of space for the greens to push forward something progressive. Well, they didn't put forward something progressive, but it really kind of narrowed that space a lot, I think. And, um, yeah, I'm not, I, don't, I couldn't really tell you what, what was the platform in which they were running this election on. I mean, they're on the back foot a lot because they were having to deal with, um, you know, a lot of the issues, which is, you know, their own doing of these um, different candidates who've got, you know, different issues going on. And I think that... You know, that's politics, though. Whether whether the Labor Party um, people had leaked that information or however the media got hold of that, um, you know, clearly the Herald Sun was interested in kind of, you know, producing that kind of stuff. But the Herald Sun has been running, you know, essentially a campaign against Andrew's government mm. for, you know, two years nearly. And, uh, you know, I think that th- this is politics, though. And, you know, all of the parties need to play this kind of game, and it's unfortunate, but yeah. that, that's it. And but I think that's what we can say is the Greens played it poorly. I mean, I saw a really interesting post online by the former candidate, uh, Greens candidate for Footscray, a guy called, a guy called uh, Rob Swift, who was denied running this this year. Mm-hmm. Uh, he was told he was a risk to the party because of comments he made about the Australian Christian Lobby on, online, who are mm-hmm. a far-right, theocratic interference, mm-hmm. you know, full-on uh, stuff they put up online. And he was deemed too risky for comments he made about that. But then mm-hmm. Angus McAlpine is not vetted. And, and you know, it's Rob Sith was saying online, yeah. you know, you look at the, the wonderful career of Colleen Hartland, and Huan Trong, I think, was a really good... Um, someone mm. to carry on that legacy. She seemed like had a really good start, um, and she won't 
by yeah. by the current count, she won't be in the in the Legislative Council next year, and it's it's very disappointing. They had so much momentum twelve months ago after Thorpe's, or it was less than twelve months, wasn't it? Yeah. Thorpe's win in yeah. Northgate. There was a, a serious expectation that they could carry Absolutely. the inner city, you know, Richmond, Brunswick. So it's been. Uh, you've got to say that the Greens themselves have responded poorly to this to this dirty politics, uh, yeah. as, as you're saying. But they also, and look, hopefully this is a lesson that they're more prepared next time. Um, mm. Richard Ginatelli was on John Fain on Saturday night. Um, I was listening to him being very defensive, <laughs> um, but essentially admitting that. Um, they hadn't just done Facebook searches of their candidates and, and sort of saying, well, who does that? And the other major party representatives were saying, well, everyone, mm. you know, this mm. is, you have to do this these. The modern reality. Yeah, these are the things that you have to do now. And um, look, hopefully moving forward, it changes. And I think, you know, there's clearly a struggle as well between uh, Richard Di Natale and some of the right of the Greens Party and, um, you know, the, the left wing kind of, um, base and that is in uh, Victoria and clearly you know people in Victoria have shown that they want to have a progressive government and that's not necessarily what the Greens were offering. I just point out though I think that um, Lydia Thorpe did actually get the most votes mm. in um, Northcote seat um, so you know again that comes down to preferences as well. Uh, we've run out of time for alternative news, but thank you for your analysis. Uh, you're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is 7.15am, and we'll be back in just a moment with Lucy Honan. to 3CR Monday Breakfast and on the phone now is Lucy Honan who is an AU representative uh, from a secondary school and a member of the organisation's Victorian State Council. She's also a member of Melbourne Educators for Social and Environmental Justice. Thanks for joining us this morning, Lucy. Thanks for having me, Jackson. So, Lucy, what are your thoughts from a uh, perspective of education? What are your thoughts on the election results? Uh, first thought is, thank God, um, the state gave Matthew Guy such a thumping. That was really, it was great to see that that law and order agenda, the 
demonization of African young people didn't get him anywhere. And I think a real um, strong message to the Federal Liberal Party and also to um, the Federal Labor Party to some extent that racism doesn't work and, you know, we need to, we need to stop doing that. Um, message has been really um, concerned about that demonization of African young people and racism in schools. We were at the um, anti-racism rally recently. Mm. We wrote an article earlier in the year about, you know, the Liberals sort of plan to put more police in schools and which schools they would be targeting and why we, you know, why we're really, really concerned about that. So so that from the outset, we're really pleased about that. Um, I guess, though, in terms of the Labor Party return, um other than being being pleased it's not the Liberals, I suppose we're familiar <laughs> with the Labor Party and their approach to education. Mm. Um, they've promised more funding, um, which is good, but they haven't promised what the AEU kind of outlined is necessary in terms of fair funding for public schools, the, the numbers of teachers that are needed, particularly um, in the growth areas over the next couple of years. And they certainly haven't committed to dismantling NAPLAN or any of the neoliberal education mm. agenda that um, they've, they've defended quite um, fiercely over, you know, over their initial term. Yeah, it was um, it was interesting during the campaign. The Greens, you know, brought out some facts that in Victoria we actually have the lowest public funding per student of any Australian state, and that was borne out by some fact checks done by the Conversation. And then what's presented, you know. In opposition to this is, oh, we have very good results in, in NAPLAN and PISA, uh, which is, you know, just a, a fairly poor way of measuring things. I mean, what is missing in, you know, you're talking about these growth corridors where the population is booming, where there's a lot of, um, students, you know, coming from different backgrounds or requiring different needs. What do you think is, is, is missing from this low funding in Victoria? What do we need investment in in schools to combat, for example, oh, racism? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I was actually impressed with the AEU's put education first demands. The, you know, the, they articulated 1,600 new teachers in Victoria as a as a start on top of um, the needs for the 80 schools um, that were going to be that that do need to be built in the growth corridors. And I think that's a good start and a you know a good baseline number. But in terms of dealing with racism and dealing with the kinds of um, social problems that are everywhere. I think that's a really massive issue that, um, you know, we need, we need not only just the teachers, but we need to address unemployment. We need programs that are like directly, um, addressing, sorry, there's, I can hear myself repeat it back in my phone. Oh, that must be very yeah. annoying. I'm sorry. Well, you sound great on air, so don't worry. I'm sounding great? Good. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I think career education um, officers, we need more multicultural officers, and they're, they're starting to be in different schools, but they, they're, they're a really important start. But also we need to start taking apart the standardised education system and that is something that nobody is talking about, including, sadly, the Greens haven't really been clear enough on that front. We need to be having the flexibility as teachers to respond to the needs of the students in our class and their cultural background and their very specific kind of learning experience needs that that, 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 that they do come to school with. 
um, mm. and acknowledging the richness of our local communities. And before we can start to do that, we need to start dismantling NAPLAN. We need to start really challenging all of those standardised education measures that we do have across Australia. But in Victoria, we're very committed to, you know, there's the framework for improving school outcomes that the, the Labor government introduced in its first term, which just really um, turns the notch up on mm. demanding schools put out outcomes, outcomes, outcomes in everything that we do. Mm. Lucy, it's James here. Uh, I think, you know, from teachers' perspective, there seems to be a lot of op- opposition to NAPLAN and things within the educational kind of structure of what teachers are able to teach. But um, what have you found in terms of, like, government and, you know, people that are making those decisions to continue that policy? Is there sort of room to change that there? I think they don't know how to defend it, actually. There's been uh, quite a lot of criticism from from politicians in New South Wales, including Liberal politicians. Um, and, you know, when the... NAPLAN marking sort of confusion came out this year because of all of the um, difference between the fact that one group of kids did one test on a computer and another group of kids did tests on paper and they the fact that you couldn't really splice the two together in terms of outcomes. Um, our every single state government kind of went what really um, how do we how do we sell this back to people and they didn't sell it back particularly well they just said oh you can do it you can do it we've put all the numbers together and you know we need to keep people accountable they can't defend the test they can't defend the educational um, values or ethics of giving tests like this and and the way that that's transformed the education system um, I don't think there is a very strong leg for them to stand on. So um, the more on the offensive the union, um, parents, teachers, students are about why we need to take this apart, why we need to have more trust in teachers and more value in students' diversity, um, that's, that, that, I think that can win. And I think we can push, push hard over the next 12 months. And, and if ever there was a time when NAPLAN was on the edge, I think now's the time to push it over. Yeah, it feels like there is a bit of a progressive platform to build on right now, and, and students have been a wonderful resource, um, you know, for various movements. Last week, last Tuesday, students all over the country uh, walked out for refugee rights. I think it was Tuesday last week. Um, and I wanted to ask you some advice, you know, when you're working in a school or an education um, setting and you want your school to participate in something like that, what's the best way to engage uh, the school administration uh, to get behind and release the students and release the teachers for think you know I think there's a there's been ones about climate um, coming up again and uh, recent uh, yeah just on the 20th there was that one on refugee rights how do you kind of galvanise your school community around something like that? Uh, yeah, that's a really great question. Um, the the walkout last week was teachers, not students, although some students came along with their parents and, and came of their own accord. Um, and organising teachers is difficult but there are other structures so we do have sub-branches like union sub-branches within schools that give us um, a forum to meet and discuss and have our own agenda and and talk to each other outside of the strictures of of what the school and the state government agenda is and weird as it sounds that's really hard and really precious to to build up and and maintain and that's why you know local rank and file unionism is so important to defend those structures because that's how the walk-off happened 
um, last week is through the, the sub-branch structures. In terms of students and how they can organise, they they have, um, I suppose, lots of different challenges and lots of uh, um, advantages as compared to teachers as well. Um, I know some students, you know, all they need is a permission note from their parents and that's how they how they end up not showing up to school this Friday it is on the um, school climate walkout Mm. Um, and there are SRC structures and things like that but I think they can easily be dominated by the school um, and and not necessarily a place for students to have um, uninterrupted discussion amongst themselves Mm. Um, I think that's something that students can can build up and, and definitely this school walkout on Friday is a really good opportunity for students to start building that out, finding who the other kids at their school are who who care about these issues, finding them at other schools, networking, sharing ideas about what works. Hmm. Obviously, the campaign that we just saw, uh, we, we heard a lot from Matthew Guy and other conservative voices, including Lyle Shelton and the, uh, the Christian lobby, the Victorians would vote in droves against the Safe Schools program. Miranda Devine has written a bizarre op-ed just over the weekend saying that Guy lost because he didn't go hard enough on Safe Schools. Uh, he wasn't more strongly opposed to LGBTQI anti-bullying programs. Were you at all surprised by this you know, wholesale rejection of these divisive politics? I mean, it feels like, from my perspective, that the right consistently underestimate the progressive values of everyday people. Mm. I, I mean, yeah, I think that's very true. I don't, I don't think I was surprised because, I mean, definitely on that front, the Yes campaign, while it wasn't radical and it didn't really defend safe schools or trans rights, mm. to be honest, um, it did set a baseline about respect and and that. Um, people should have rights in terms of their own personal relationships and if they deviate from straight relationships, that's no reason to take away people's rights. Um, and, you know, as limited as that was and as kind of within a very, very um, confined family unit sort of structure, but I think the Yes campaign was an opportunity for LGBT people to, to demand rights and so the fact that that it didn't work, the backlash didn't work this time. I'm I'm not surprised about that. I'm really pleased about it, but I'm not surprised. Mm. The thing that concerns me about safe schools though is I I didn't really hear Labor defend it in um in the terms of this is about again it was about suicide and it was about um, saving lives and bullying and those things are all absolutely true and horrifying facts about you know homophobia in our society are the results of suicide and 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 of um, bullying and so on but I I want to hear that really unadulterated sort of yes if you are a girl and you show up to school in a dress, that's fine. If you are a boy and you show up to school in a dress, that's fine because school uniforms are ridiculous anyway. Um, The sort of um, openly defence and using the term safe schools, because I know there's been a lot of sort of, you know, that's a tarred um, term that's, you know, associated with cultural Marxism and gender fluidity or those Mm. sorts of assaults. 
And I think, you know, there are people around the, the Safe Schools program who have said, you know, like, we just need to ditch the term. Mm-hmm. I think those were really important games, that we do talk about the fact that gender is fluid, that we do talk about the fact that sexuality as well is fluid, mm. um, and, and that people don't have to defend themselves or define themselves in that way. You know, that's a really important part of our education that's radical, um, and, and that should be defended a little more, I think, by Labor. Yeah, and that normalising those terms and that structure is going to do a lot more to combat suicide and bullying than just coming down hard on, you know, homophobic perpetrators. It's actually about changing Absolutely. the culture, you know, which I think is, yeah, it has I been something missing. Yeah. It has been something missing from, you know, uh, Labor's discourse during this election and historically. I mean, they, they've kind of undermined the initial program in many ways, wide-handed it since it uh, was rolled out, you know, in response to these conservative commentators. It would be good to see them stand up and back it to the hilt in what its initial mm. aims, aims were. Lucy, thanks so much for joining us this morning um, and uh, uh, best of luck with everything that's uh, coming up in the future. We've unfortunately run out of time. Thanks, Jackson. Thanks very much. So you are listening to uh, 3CR, it's Monday breakfast, the time is about half past seven and we'll be back very soon with Sue Bolton. We're not going anywhere, I shouldn't say we'll be back. You'll be right here and so will we. So stay tuned. and over? Have you been stopped by a Victorian police officer or protective service officer in the last 10 years? Would you like to contribute to research that aims to inform law reform and litigation strategies to prevent over-policing? Go to policestopsurvey.online for more information and to take part. That's policestopsurvey.online, a 3CR supporter. Listening to 3CR Community Radio 855am. Visit the 3CR website at 3cr.org.au forward slash podcast to hear the most recent recording from each show or 3cr.org.au forward slash streaming to listen live. Welcome back to Monday Breakfast on 3CR and we're joined now by Sue Bolton who's part of the Victorian Socialists who I'm sure our listeners have been seeing around the place and no doubt saw when they were casting their vote on Saturday. Um, so thanks a lot for joining us this morning, Sue. Hi, how's it going? Good. Uh, thanks. For, I'm sure it's um, been a very busy weekend, so thanks for um, spending the time with us this morning. No problem. I guess, yeah, to, um, to start with, you know, what are your kind of initial sort of thoughts on, um, you know, the way that the campaign, you know, has has ended for Victorian Socialists? Well, my first thoughts are that this has been a fantastic campaign. This is the biggest uh, socialist election campaign uh, in my political life. Um, I'm not sure when the Communist Party last ran a big campaign, but I don't remember such a big campaign uh, by a socialist um, 
electoral group um, for, you know, decades, going back to the 80s. Uh, possibly uh, there hasn't been a campaign like this since the 70s. And I think that is um, a fantastic achievement. And because, and I think a critical element to this was some groups coming together to form Victorian socialists. I don't think the campaign would have had as much reach if uh, we didn't have a coming together of some of the groups. And we really had an impact, a big impact. Uh, whether it will be enough to get us elected or not isn't clear yet. There's a lot more voting uh, to happen or vote counting to happen. Um, and, you know, often it takes a while to work out the last position. I noticed that... Um, you know, the ABC election website is predicting a Darren Hinch win in Northern Metropolitan, even though they got a much far lower vote than us, um, something like one point something percent of the vote versus our 4.74% of the vote. Um, but we have really achieved a massive result. So, Sue, like, how would you, and as you kind of alluded to there, you've campaigned, um, you know, previously with Socialist Alliance um, running candidates in a number of areas previously. And as you said, the Victorian Socialists is a coming together of a number of socialist groups. How would you compare this kind of campaign to those previous ones? Well, I think we've run some big Socialist Alliance campaigns in the past as well. But I just think we the coming together of more you know, several groups, three groups really, plus independents, um, just really expanded our reach and energised people. And I think we each brought our um, bases of support together. Um, we had two sitting councillors on the ticket, Steve Jolly and myself, um, and the sort of base of support that that brings. And all, and then a, a last, uh, a later addition to the campaign was getting union support for our Western Region campaign that listeners in Melbourne might not be so aware of, but we ran um, a serious campaign in the Western Region, uh, which stretches, that's the upper house seat, which stretches from Geelong to the South Australian border, uh, and some of the unions got behind that, um, and that was fairly late in the day, um, and that was partly because um, the right winger that got elected to the fifth spot there last time, um, you know, voted down uh, nurse ratios in aged care. And so that sort of energised some unions to um, back that campaign. So it was, it was, we had a lot of resources and support coming to this campaign from all sorts of different quarters. And yeah, and so I think that that is the difference between this campaign and our socialist alliance campaigns in the past. I mean, some have been quite big and some and quite, um, you know, involved a lot of people and got a lot of broad support. But I think this surpassed any of those. Um, and, and, you know, in the past, uh, there have been quite reasonable votes for socialist candidates. Like, I think in... You know, the group that, um, one of the groups that, uh, helped form, uh, Socialist Alliance, the Old Democratic Socialist Party, 
I mean, we did get some quite sizable votes uh, for our candidates in elections in the early 90s. Um, we got, you know, 8, 9, 10% of the vote in some state and federal um, electorates in the early 90s in different different states. But I think when the Greens came along, that um, sort of absorbed that left vote for a long time. Mm. And uh, now this coming together um, has been a really massive, a massive uh, effort. And I also think the experience of the mass door knocking, mm. I think for me, was a highlight of the campaign. And surely that must have an impact on everyone who participated, in, including some of the activists who've only ever participated in student politics before. Yeah. I think, um, I think that was a really fantastic thing. Yeah, it was really a feature of the campaign, the, the hundreds or thousands of people volunteering, getting involved, getting an insight into socialist ideology and, and, and thoughts. And I mean, I've just been reading recently Jeff Sparrow's book, uh, Trigger Warnings, which identifies the left's kind of, um, you know, disengagement with uh, everyday people um, in favour of what Sparrow calls delegated politics. But this is, you know... How was it out in Broad Meadows, where I think you know Jeremy Small uh, received seven percent of the vote? I wonder, Sue, when you were out there and talking to people, what was the feeling amongst you know everyday people living in the north of Melbourne about the socialist platform? Well, I think there were a lot of people who we knocked on the doors of, in especially in areas like Broad Meadows and so forth, who were quite disengaged from politics and. You know, everyone's crap and, and, you know, plus, you know, possibly thinking we were crap as well because we were, just, we were also a political party that was, um, you know, um, saying that we were standing in the elections and we'd like them to vote for us. Um, but I think we sort of also got down to the issues and I think that's what made a difference. And in Broadmeadows, it was Broadmeadows, even the northern part of Moreland, it was quite different to door knocking in inner city areas. And um, part of that area is the area where I'm a, I'm a ward councillor. And um, now the area where I'm a ward councillor, there probably has been a lot more political activity because I've been engaged in a number of campaigns in Faulkner. Um, but in Broadmeadows... Um, there is a campaigning group, um, the Broadmeadows Progress Association, which was really um, established by some more Maoists in the um, Marxist Workers' Party, and they're still going and they still organise around issues, which is a bit of a rarity in a lot of the outer, outer suburban areas. But there is a lot of disengagement, and I think it also reflects the fact that the Labor Party, um, they just see people as uh, voting cows, mm. <laughs> um, just vote for us and, you know, that's it. Um, and in fact, it's pretty clear that the Labor Party doesn't even bother door knocking anymore in those safe Labor seats. Once upon a time, they would have. Um, they don't even bother. The Greens did no campaigning at, at all. They actually pre-selected actually really good activists, local activists, who lives two doors away from the um, recycling plant where there was a massive fire and um, she was active in the Broadmoor Progress Association. But they didn't do... They selected her at the last minute 
they didn't do any campaigning. The only campaigning that was done was by her and her family and friends. Um, there was so, so the Greens didn't even cover most of the polling booths with people handing out a vote. They didn't even cover the um, polling booths in Faulkner um, where they've got a Greens councillor. Um, they didn't cover any of those polling booths. So on those Faulkner polling booths was just us and Labor. And on quite a lot of the Broadmoors polling booths, it was just us and Labor. And then even in the Pasco Vale district, which includes Glenroy and Coburg and so forth, um, and Pasco Vale, um, there were some of the smaller booths where there were no Greens presence at all, which I was surprised about because, you know, I would have thought, you know, they've made a big push on the federal electoral seat of wills um, and they didn't cover all of the polling booths or would constitute that seat. And I think the fact that um, Labor Party even set up late at the polling booths, so some of the polling booths, we were the only people handing out how to vote for some time before Labor Party even rocked up. So I think that shows a real um, just um, take it for granted, doesn't give a stuff about the North um, at all. And then also I think, um, yeah, I think, yes, I know, obviously I can understand the Greens, they're focused on the seats where you've got a chance of winning and in a sense I guess Victorian Socialists did that by focusing on Northern Metropolitan um, but I yeah I, you just really get the sense of this area being taken for granted and um, but I think some of our policies the fact that we were focusing on a lot of issues that really affect people especially cost of living type issues I mean, yes, we talked about some of our social agenda as well, but we really focused on some of those um, cost of living issues which are really affecting people, which also um, tend to drive some people towards the racist right. Um, so you said and that, I think that was partly our, the purpose of our campaign. Uh, you're talking about the kind of, you know, the energy that the group brought and to be able to have so many people across all the booths and, you know, the door knocking and all that. And clearly, you know, having a number of parties together who have activists that are, you know, really engaged and, you know, in the kind of course of what, what's happening, you're able to call on those people. What is the long-term kind of strategy for Victorian socialists? And, you know, there was a really big push to, um, you know, try to get Steve Jolly elected in, in this um, election, and that was what a lot of the galvanising was around. And, it, you know, it doesn't look like that that's going to happen. In four years' time, you know, is the Victorian Socialist going to run candidates again? And are, you know, these people going to be energised to campaign in the same way? I think um, Victorian Socialists, does definitely have a life after this election because so many people got involved in this. I think people, I think it had a really, the campaign had a big effect on all of the volunteers um, and the participating groups, um, as well as a lot of people who didn't necessarily get involved in the campaign but voted for the Victorian Socialists. I think we did eat into some of the Greens' vote, some of the Labor vote. I think there were a lot of people who um, 
have a left-wing viewpoint um, and they have either voted Labor or Greens but really felt the need for something much more radical and much more class-based. Um, and I think some of those people did desert those parties and vote for us. Um, and so I think this will absolutely go on. That's my impression from all of our, partner, our partners in this alliance. Um, I also think there's a possibility of us running in council elections like a team covering all of the wards in the council elections in Yarra and Moreland councils. And I think that's also a little bit of a lesson here as well because I think the work that Steve and I have done on council, which has forced us to be involved in very basic local issues, and some of these are not left-right issues. These can be you know, about rubbish in the street or, you know, like very specific local issues where council's maybe not been, you know, active enough in sorting out some basic, you know, amenity kind of issue. Um, but I think people build up a regard, might be more attached to the individual rather than the party initially, but then makes people... Um, gives people the opportunity to have a look at the party behind that individual. And I think that's a really important thing, which I think the left has been experiencing in Melbourne, I think initially through Steve Jolly's um, uh, work on Yarra Council and then through my work on Moreland Council. And I think a lot of parties in um, uh, poor countries tend to do this sort of work, but in advanced capitalist countries, Generally, um, socialist parties are more involved in um, uh, campaigns around the moral issues of the day, which are also very important, like refugee rights and climate change and solidarity with Palestine and, and Indigenous rights and so forth. And it's important that we're involved in all of those things. But in terms of working-class people becoming familiar with... Um, socialists and being prepared to consider our views, um, you need to be involved in those sort of local campaigns. A little bit also like um, socialist trade unionists and workers on the job um, getting a sense of what socialists um, mean. Um, and I think the Communist Party, when it had local councillors, um, you know, the Communist Party had people at all, all sorts of deep did all sorts of deep-rooted work, including on local councils, in um, childcare committees, all sorts of um, areas, possibly more so in Sydney than in Melbourne. Um, and um, that work had a big impact, was really important in um, the Communist Party having as much support as it did when it was a mass party. So we're unfortunately running out of time, but it's been great to get any insight into um, what the Victorian Socialists felt about the campaign and looking forward. And, um, you know, hopefully we can chat again about, um, you know, what's happening in the future with the group. And we'd love to hear more about some of the um, campaigns you've been involved in locally another time as well. No worries. Thanks very much. Thanks, Sue. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is just coming up to 7.50am, also known as 10 to 8. Uh, and we will now 
we'll be playing our regular segment, Over the Wall. This week on Over the Wall, we speak to academic Emily Wolfinger about issues around welfare for soul mothers. My name's Emily Wolfinger and I'm a special academic doing a PhD looking at online user perceptions of soul mother poverty and welfare in Australia. Welcome to Over the Wall on 3CR. Emily, your study titled Australia's Welfare Discourse and News Presenting Single Mothers was unique in that it exclusively examined representations of single mothers. What were some of your major findings? Well, I looked at Dirty Telegraph articles and transcripts of ACA, or current affair episodes, to study representation of soul mothers in the media. A major finding of my research was that negative stereotypes of soul parents have shifted the moral responsibility of some mothers um, increasingly and predominantly focused on the economic responsibility of some mothers. With the term sometimes in the media a burden? Yeah, so I found that that was one of the most common depictions in the media I studied put forward by politicians that sole parents were or sole mothers were an economic burden. So that was talked about in terms of the cost of sole parent welfare to taxpayers. So that was often implicit as well. And how have media representations of single mothers reflected the ideals of proponents for punitive welfare changes? Okay, well, the media, usually by the comments of politicians, depicted sole mothers as an economic burden, economically irresponsible, and to a lesser extent as dishonest welfare fraud and so on. So by depicting soul mothers this way, proponents of welfare cuts were essentially able to legitimise the welfare changes. Welfare reforms over decades have become, as you wrote, increasingly paternalistic measures that seek to increase obligations of welfare recipients while reducing the responsibilities of governments. Could you explain what you mean by this, please? Uh, Sure. Welfare states were seen as a means of compensating people for the inequities of the market and as an entitlement of social citizenship. So in the decades since the 1970s, neoliberal ideas, they've become widely known, about the role of the state in the market began to influence political decision-making in countries like Australia. This has seen the repurposing of government as facilitator of the free market economy. This has required, among other measures, the restriction of income support as an intervention in the market through conditions of entitlement, surveillance and punitive measures for non-compliant recipients. The Howard government's welfare-to-work policies moved new sole parents, those who began receiving the parenting payment single after July 2006, the PPS, they were moved from PPS to Newstart once their child was eight. And previously this shift didn't occur onto Newstart till the child was 16 years of age. The Gillard government's welfare reforms placed tighter measure on single parents. 
the Gillard government's sole parent pension cuts, which came into effect in 2013, also impacted people receiving PPS parental payment single before welfare to work came into effect. Therefore, the Gillard government's change made the shift onto New Start once a child was eight universal for all single parents receiving welfare, regardless of the time frame. And this measure was built upon the Howard government's 2005 welfare to work policy and how have these measures impacted upon single mothers? We know that during this period of welfare reform, some mothers were already overwhelmingly as a group engaged in some form of employment. We also know that those who weren't tended to have young, particularly dependent children or to be caring for children with disability. So in terms of increasing some mothers' participation in the workforce, the impact of these welfare reforms was marginal. Where it really did impact was to poverty. According to a report released by the Australian Council of Social Services, poverty in sole parent households has actually increased in recent years and that this was actually linked in the report to welfare to work legislation. As a result, we've also seen an increase in child poverty in sole parent families rising from 18% to 23% since social security for sole parents was cut in 2013. Could you give some examples of this increase in poverty? Okay, well first of all, the most dramatic impact would have been seen in terms of the um, payment being cut, so what sole parents received after these reforms was less than what they previously received. Now whilst you know, many some mothers have been able to make up the loss in terms of increasing their employment. Others have not been able to. Others have struggled to do so for a variety of reasons. Neoliberalism is a primary focus of, of modern economic policies with the ideal that citizens must become active participants in, in the marketplace. Primary responsibility is to the economy and how has this neoliberalism ideal failed to recognise the obstacles to economic participation faced by single mothers? Yeah, sure. Well, I would argue that neoliberal ideology is essentially based on masculine principles, self-reliance and individual responsibility. I think these values are at odds with the reality of caring work which is a predominantly female experience. Because the emphasis under neoliberalism is on individual responsibility, you know, emphasis on economic participation, self-reliance and personal responsibility, structural barriers to women's employment are not always acknowledged. What are some yeah. of those structural barriers? First and foremost, we know that women are most likely to do the overwhelming share of household work, including caring work. Now, we know that this impacts women whilst they're in relationships in terms of their participation in the workplace. So, for example, women generally are most likely to be engaged in part-time or casual work. This has an impact on women's earnings, earning capacity, and so that when relationships break down, often women find themselves in a precarious situation in terms of their finances. Now, in terms of navigating the workplace, in terms of sole mothers navigating the workforce, this care, this load of care continues 
continues after relationships break down. And this creates difficulties in terms of some others then being able to manage the tensions between their caring responsibilities and their working responsibilities. In terms of the impact of caregiving on women's economic participation, it has an impact in terms of their earning capacity, where they take time off work and so on. Women find themselves parenting alone after relationship breakdown. The uh, situation is that they're on a much lower income. This dramatically impacts on their financial security. So these are just some of the examples. And also as being more likely to experience domestic violence, women are more likely mm-hmm. to experience sexual harassment in the workplace and yep, having a casualised mm-hmm. market, again, places women at great income vulnerability, do you think? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. We know that women generally, 70% are engaged in either part-time or casual employment. For sole mothers, this is higher. You know, it is precarious in a context of discrimination and bullying uh, in the workplace. This is intensified for women because of their parenting responsibilities and often they need to be present for their children. For example, when their children are sick, they don't have a partner to help pick up the slack. This is a public service announcement. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. We're doing a special on the Victorian state election, uh, which occurred over the weekend. And on the phone right now, we have Tim Reid, who is the Greens candidate for Brunswick, a seat which was tipped by many to be at risk of costing the ALP a parliamentary majority if Saturday's result had have been closer. Uh, part of what many were calling a green wave in the inner north of the city, with Brunswick and Richmond tipped to join Melbourne, Northcote and Paran as green seats in the lower house. As it turns out, Brunswick is still undecided, with less than 100 votes separating Tim Reid and Labor candidate Cindy O'Connor late last night. Mm. Uh, Tim, good morning. Thanks for joining us. Morning. Tim, have you slept since Friday night? <laughs> uh, well, actually, um, pretty well. Ah. <laughs> Fantastic. Tim, how are By you the feeling? Way, I've, so I've got an echo here. It, it, is it bothering you? No, you sound fine to us. Apologies for okay, that. I think it's something with our line, but you're, you're coming across loud and clear. No echo in our studio. Great. So, Tim, uh, how are you feeling about uh, the election? Uh, pretty good. I've, I'm at work. I've got patients to see shortly. So I thought this would be a good way of taking my mind off what's going on. <laughs> to talk about it a little bit. It's still too close to call. What, what's your read on the issues that were driving voters when they went to the polls on Saturday? So in Brunswick, it's a very young and informed electorate. Look, I'm sorry, you're going to have to call me back. I've just got a, a continuous echo Oh, okay. All right. Well, we'll try a different line. Sorry about that, uh, Tim. And we'll get you back on in, in just a moment. Just give me just a moment. 
Sorry about that, listeners. Uh, I'll just put on a tune and uh, we will be back in just a moment. Hi, it's Paul Kelly here. Hi, this is Shane Howard here, asking you to support 3CR. Independent radio station, encouraging independent music and independent thought. They've been supporting musicians for more than 30 years, so let's support them. Women on the Line, a current affairs program devoted to women's voices, covering a diversity of women's interests and hearing women's perspectives on current affairs. Erosion of human rights leads directly and inevitably to erosion of human security. We do not accept the denial of our rights because the right to have a say over our country is our life. Women on the Line. Tune in on Mondays at 8.30am and Wednesdays at 6am on 3CR Community Radio, 8.55am. And streaming live at 3cr.org.au. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast and we've just got Tim Reid, Greens candidate for Brunswick, on the phone again. We're going to give it a try. Tim, can you hear me now? Yeah, that's much better. Oh, that's good to hear. I'm glad we sorted that out. So, Tim, the seat's still close to call, uh, too close to call, and your campaign against Cindy O'Connor was described early on as exceedingly polite, and you had some very polite words uh, after, the, after the campaign. You said, respect to Cindy O'Connor for turning up to every forum on every to- topic and for, keeping, for your team for keeping it friendly on the booths. But there were some underhand tactics that took place in the seat, uh, some desecrated posters, I think some letterbox material that could be described as dirty politics. What impact do you think dirty politics had on the Greens campaign, yours and, and more at large, this election? It's, it's really hard to know. We'll have to see if anyone does research or exit polling to see um, if our vote fell uh, among women, for example, which uh, a poll in The Age predicted uh, and, uh, and put on page one on, um, on Saturday, which may not have helped. Um, the, uh, it's true, the campaign to portray the, um, you know, so-called toxic masculinity in the Greens was very well funded with a lot of digital and posters and addressed mail, so it would have been quite expensive. Um, it's interesting that um, all of this emerged in the fortnight before polling day, uh, and, um, you know, there's no doubt that the Greens have some problems that we have to address, and it's extremely helpful of um, Labor to have pointed these out to us. Um, but um, to what extent it actually had an effect, we'll never know. So you're acknowledging that there is some, some cultural issues. Um, how do you think the party recovers from this position? You know, a, a year ago after Lydia Thorpe won Northgate, 
many were predicting you know, the Greens to become a stronger political force in a more progressive Andrews government. And Samantha Ratham was, was quite open about, you know, the desire to form, you know, some, some kind of, uh, you know, coalition if possible, you know, a broad-based uh, progressive um, platform that would bring the Greens and Labor together. Uh, how do you think the Greens can, can improve uh, on, what, on what went down this election? Right. There's a lot of points there. Um, I'll go to the first one. So I, I don't acknowledge that we have cultural issues that are at least any different to the rest of society. Um, we're a very large community-based or grassroots organisation, um, and so we recruit from, from the community, uh, or, or perhaps another way of putting it, the community joins us. Uh, there, there are people who, like myself, who have day jobs and... Um, you know, have some other identity in the community who put on a green T-shirt come election time. So um, th- there's no doubt we have to address issues about uh, how we handle bad publicity that emerges in the fortnight before the election. We have to uh, review things like selection of candidates and staff. But um, anyone who's spent any time in, in Greens meetings or with Greens knows that that... We're a strongly feminist party, um, and at least prior to Saturday, uh, seven of our eight MPs were women. So, so, um, so I reject the diagnosis of a, of a significant cultural issue there. Um, in terms of how the Greens come back from this, uh, well, first of all, I think we have to wait for the counting um, to finish to find out where we are. Um, upper House seats in particular are impossible to call at this stage. Um, it looks as though our vote has suffered, though. There's no doubt about it. And we'll have to look at, at our strategies. Part of what's happened, though, is, I think, forces that were literally outside of our control. Um, the Liberal vote has collapsed across the state, and a, a large amount of that's gone to Labor. Almost all of it's gone to Labor, so there's been a big swing to Labor, which means that changes happening to the Greens vote become almost insignificant. Yeah, I mean, you can see that even before the election in the candidates that were fielded in your seat. I mean, your opponent from Labor, Cindy O'Connor, is a long-term member of the Labor left. You're also competing with Catherine Devaney of the Reason Party. And while the Victorian Socialists didn't field a lower house candidate, the party was extremely active north of the CBD. Uh, Dan Andrews, after the election, described Victoria as the most progressive state in the country. Brunswick might be its most progressive seat. Where can the Greens improve in terms of their left-wing credentials to win over more left-wing voters still, if that's the way the state is moving? Um, so I'm, I'm not sure that um, our, um, our failure to have already achieved 51% in Brunswick, if that's what... <laughs> You're getting at. I mean, we still don't know where we are in Brunswick, but mm. you know, um, I'm not sure that our lack of a, uh, sort of immediate electoral success is necessarily due to um, difficulty attracting left-wing voters. Um, the, um, you know, where where would voters in Brunswick have gone in the lower house uh, if they were left-wing? Were it not to the Greens? So the Save the Planet candidate, um, I'm not sure what percentage he got, but. Um, uh, and, and who else was there? Um, so I think um, the I, I think that the, the problem that beset us was um, a large number of Liberal voters 
um, just went straight to Labor. Uh, and that kept the Labor vote high. The Liberal vote in Brunswick in the previous two elections was around 16%. And when I last looked um, on Saturday and pre-poll, it was, it was just under 10%. Mm. So that's, that's an extraordinary collapse. And it's quite sort of remarkable to think that there's any place in... Australia, where the Liberal vote fails to get to 10%. I mean, they did field kind of just a junior staffer, a very young, green, um, you know, green as in young candidate uh, in the Liberal Party, uh, Adam Watonis, I think his name is. But, uh, yeah. I mean, your question, where are left-wing voters going to go? I mean, I, w- I would argue that this election they went to Labor and that the Greens have not had a kind of progressive credentialed opposition uh, for some time, but Dan Andrews' government has presented, uh, has run, you know, a largely left-wing campaign. Yeah, um, that's, that's um, interesting. That wouldn't, it wouldn't have occurred to me that they might have gone to Labor. Um, you know, Labor's basically a... Um, it, it has been way more progressive than... Um, than Napthine and Bailu, uh, their predecessors... But, um, you know, there's still a private toll road building, uh, privatising sort of a government. Um, and so uh, I suppose, though, that they did certainly pick on some progressive issues and uh, emphasise those and, and, you know, to their absolute credit. So, for example, um, the Family Violence Royal Commission um, and uh, um, they've made some achievements in public transport. Uh, while still putting 70% of the total transport budget into roads. Uh, so, uh, and I think a lot of their progressive achievements were well marketed in Brunswick. Um, and, but nowhere do you see how much coal is being burnt in Victoria. It's, it's actually quite hard to find that out, but, I, you know, I think it's sort of 40 to 50 million tonnes a year. Um, so there's still a coal burning, uh, native forest felling road building government. Um, the issue may be one more of communications than of, of actual policy credentials. Mm. Uh, very good point. So, look, Tim, there were a slew of preference deals that may yet see the Greens lose upper house members as well as the lower house, which are yet to be decided, as you've, as you've pointed out. In my lecture, we lost, or we may have lost, uh, Juan Trong, who seemed, from my perspective, to be a great fit to continue the legacy of the career of Colleen Hartland, who was a wonderful servant for the western suburbs of Melbourne. Um, unfortunately, we will now have the pleasure of uh, independent-turned-Hinch Justice Party former Mayor Catherine Cumming. What can a party the size of the Greens do to combat the influence of these minor parties and, and the preference whisperer, the, the Glenn Drury's of this world? Um, I, I think now it's... Um, well, well, very little is a short answer, right? The upper house system with... Uh, above-the-line group tickets um, favours the preference whisperer and, and with or without him it favours deals that lead to people with very small primary votes getting elected over those with primary votes mm-hmm. that are seven or eight times theirs. So until that system is reformed, um, we're stuck with it. Now, um, the... The pathway to reform is unclear until we see the makeup of the upper and lower houses. Well, we kind of know the lower house, but uh, if Labor, as it seems likely, has a majority in both houses, they'll be able to reform it without any trouble. And the question will be, will they want to? Mm. And it may well be that what uh, 
progressive individuals in Victoria need to do is just campaign Labor against Labor until it's just so embarrassed that it has to reform upper house voting. Yeah, I think, um, you know, there was definitely a push on social media, various platforms for people to vote uh, properly below the line. I think they've, they've changed it now so you can just put one to five and your vote will count below the line. I think it used to be you had to fill out every single box and there are a lot of candidates now. But I did hear uh, a few commentators saying that still 90% of voters vote above the line for the upper house. So that's definitely something if we're not going to do parliamentary reform, people need to be very aware of uh, where their votes can be going if they don't take the time to fill in those extra extra numbers. Tim, uh, look, I, could, can I just interrupt and say that's mm. a really key point. Um, and I think reform of democracy is something that we've got to look at. Things like the way Melbourne City Council is elected, mm-hmm. um, the above-the-line voting in the upper house, uh, and the fact that opposition members and independents can't even raise legislation in the lower house. These are all things that, that need reform. Mm. They don't get enough publicity, and shows like yours... Uh, do a great job in raising these topics. Well, thanks for that, Tim. That's very kind. And thanks for joining us this morning. Uh, I've got to let you go now. Uh, Good luck with all your patience today. And we keep watching the Brunswick electorate to find out what the final results will be. Thanks very much. So that was Tim Reid, the Greens candidate for Brunswick. A seat is still too close to call between he and Cindy O'Connor in that inner city seat. You're listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. Stay tuned. Panoply, panorama, panpipe, pansy, aha, pansexual, knowing no boundaries of sex or gender. Sound interesting? Then join Sally on Sundays at noon for Out of the Pan. All those gender questions making you think too hard? Whether it's transgender, bisexual, polyamorous or beyond... We'll throw those questions into the pan and cook up the answers for you. So go on, push that gender envelope only on 3CR, 855am digital and 3cr.org.au. you got to remember, Nate, it's a special day for us, fellas. Reminder who we are. Every year for NAIDOC Week, 3CR Community Radio gives voice to our Indigenous brothers and sisters through Beyond the Bars, Australia's only live prison broadcast. I am a black, black man. NAIDOC means a lot to me. It's about identity and also about past and present. NAIDOC means a lot to me for my family and my people. And the people forgetting about our rights. You can access audio from current and past Beyond the Bars broadcasts via the 3CR website. Go to 3cr.org.au forward slash beyond the bars and you'll listen to or download audio from Australia's only live prison broadcasts. You are listening to 3CR Monday Breakfast. The time is coming up on 17 past. Eight. And joining us on the phone now is Danny Pearson, uh, victorious uh, LP candidate for Essendon. Uh, good morning, Danny. Thanks for being with us. Good morning. Thanks for having me on your show. So I'm not sure that even the most optimistic members of your party could have predicted the results of Saturday night. What factors do you put this landslide or what some are calling a danslide down to? Oh, well, look, I think it's a uh, 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 emphatic uh, 
uh, approval uh, of the uh, of the actions and conduct of the Andrews Labor government over the last four years. Uh, we have made a, a real focus about um, uh, fulfilling uh, each and every election commitment we took to the people in 2014, and we've been very busy and we got on with it. And I think running concurrently with that is the fact that uh, people aren't stupid, and I don't think people uh, really uh, appreciated um, some of the, the the language and the policies and the narrative. Uh, that um, the coalition were uh, pursuing uh, over the course of the uh, the election campaign. Yeah, there's been a lot of commentary and happy commentary here at 3CR about the general rejection of that, what appears to be a rejection of that campaign of racism and division and homophobia that elements of uh, the Liberal Party and the coalition and the conservative right were putting out. But there's also the other side, you know, that uh, this, this Labor government uh, has been seen in some quarters as a more progressive government. You know, there's been even words like socialist left uh, bandied about. How do you feel about that term being used to describe the approach of the Andrews government uh, to things like public spending and government regulation of industries? And after that election result, will we see more progressive uh, socialist policies from this Andrews government? Oh, well, look, I, I think uh, really for, for this government, it's been about... Uh, Developing policies which resonate with ordinary Victorians. Now you can you can label it progressive, or you can label it socialist, or you could label it you know libertarian, or you use any number of labels. I guess you you, you may wish. Um, the, the bottom line is that we have been a government that's been really focused on uh, providing good public policy for ordinary Victorians, and that comes down to making sure that you've got those investments required into our schools, um, into our public housing, um, yeah, making sure that uh, our migrant communities are, feel safe and welcome. And uh, I think what you'll see uh, over the course of the next four years is, is pretty much well, much uh, of more of the same, um, because that's what people want. People want to feel uh, welcome, uh, open, inclusive, uh, in, in their uh, society, uh, in our community, um, and they want a government that is prepared to stand with them uh, and to invest uh, on the things that really matter, to making sure the kids get a good education, making sure they've got good public housing, good public transport, um, and that there's that respect for the, the diversity uh, in our community. Danny, you touched on public housing a couple of times there, and that's been something we've been looking at quite closely here at 3CR for quite a while. Uh, I saw that in uh, the seat of Albert Park, Martin Foley, the housing minister, was returned with a greater majority than previously, but there has been a lot of consternation about the plan to sell off inner-city blocks uh, and replace them with a blend of uh, private housing and what's being called social housing. Now, there's 95,000 families on the on the public housing waiting list right now, and this... Uh, proposed sell-off is only going to increase supply by a minuscule amount. Will we see a change in Labor's policy on housing? Oh, well, look, I mean, I think some of those specific questions are best directed to, to uh, Martin Pollard, who's the Housing Minister, in terms of future directions. Um, but in terms of uh, what, what has gone, um, what, what has happened, uh, we, we've seen one of the biggest investments in public housing over these last four years. Uh, it takes time to get it right because you've got to go out there and you've got to run a, a planning process to try and work out what sort of housing you're going to look at, and that takes time. You've got to consult with the community. You can't just do what the old Housing Commission did, uh, which is just plonk um, dwellings down. But this is about building resilient communities, uh, and it's about investing in modern 21st century energy-efficient housing. 
Now, some of the housing in my electorate, uh, it was built in the 1940s or 50s or 60s, and it's just not good enough. It's just not fit for purpose. Uh, and we are looking at uh, replacing that really old rundown stock with brand new stock and more of it. Uh, and that's what people want. Uh, so, yeah, I think if you look at in you know, my electorate, if you look at um, Dick Wynn's electorate over in Richmond, if you look at uh, Martin's electorate uh, in uh, uh, in Elk Park and um, the, the electorate of Melbourne, all have got very large public housing communities, all swung heavily towards uh, Labor. Mm. Uh, and I think that uh, I think the public housing tenants recognise that these investments are just so vitally important um, to make sure that the communities are, are better and safer, uh, more resilient. Uh, and a better place to live and raise a family. It's a it's a good idea. More resilient communities, and you know we've had we've spoken to a lot of young people who live out in Melbourne's west who have uh, you know felt terribly targeted by some of the rhetoric around law and order over the last uh, 12 to 18 months. I just wanted to touch on Labor's policies in this area because we are seeing a, du- a doubling of the size of the police force. You know we're mm-hmm. seeing uh, the perhaps the rollout of anti-association laws. Uh, we're seeing new youth prisons uh, being proposed at Cherry Creek. Uh, are these the best ways to deal uh, with, um, I suppose, young young people feeling disconnected from their societies? You no, know, couldn't we see an investment in social programs, in uh, music programs, sports programs, infrastructure in these areas, rather than building prisons in the expectation that crime will be committed? Oh, look, I mean, I think that if you look at what this government has delivered over the last four years, uh, we've rebuilt TAFE. Uh, we are building the education state. Uh, we've reinstituted um, the uh, uh, education maintenance allowance. We've got school breakfast club programs. We've got um, the school camp and excursions programs. Um, yeah, we, we are providing a whole suite of measures to engage more effectively with young people. Yeah, I've been delighted to be the chair of the implementation committee of the African Action Plan. Yeah, a $10 million program over the next two years as part of a broader 10-year plan of engaging with African Australian communities. Uh, so we've got a number of initiatives uh, uh, currently underway uh, to engage with, with young people and we are making the, the really vital investments that are required um, to um, to help. Uh, we are, yes, employing uh, 3,135 police officers and I've been very keen to ensure um, that we have uh, more people uh, from an African-Australian background who are serving in the ranks of Victoria Police because I think that uh, where uh, people from the community see one of their own uh, acting uh, as or employed by Victoria Police, and I think that sends a very, very good, positive and powerful signal. Does it send a positive and powerful signal when that police member is dressed in riot gear, carrying semi-automatic weapons and crowd dispersal uh, weapons? Because that's what that's what the police have been, you know, armed with at the moment, and you know, it appears to be targeting, you know, groups of people protesting in the streets. The type of weapons they're putting on people. So I just wonder how, you know, the police force can be fostering, you know, good relations when we're preparing them for armed conflict. Oh well, look, I, I disagree with your, your assertion there. I, I look at the Victoria Police in my community; they do a fantastic job. Um, you know, ten years ago there were some significant challenges down at Flemington. Uh, between Victoria Police uh, and the community, they no longer exist. Um, there are very, very strong, harmonious working relations uh, between Victoria Police uh, and uh, the African Australian communities uh, uh, in my electorate. Uh, and uh, there's a lot of respect. Um, you can be guaranteed whenever there's an event uh, in my community, uh, 
down, uh, say, at Flemington or Ascot Vale involving the African Australian Community, Victoria Police will be there uh, in a welcoming and opening uh, way. Uh, mm-hmm. And so it's a fantastic initiative. Uh, in relation to your, your question about officers wearing riot gear, well, that's an operational matter for Victoria Police. Uh, you would, it's important that Victoria Police uh, have the tools they need to do the job. Uh, and it's important that uh, those matters uh, are dealt with at an operational level rather than having politicians making those decisions. So, Danny, you're the member for Essendon. Uh, can you yep. talk a little bit about your own electorate and your feel from the campaign this year? What, what were the people who live in Essendon uh, most concerned about? And where do you think uh, your seat was won this year? Look, I think it's been interesting. I have made... Uh, close to 10,000 contacts since the 1st of June. That's in terms of door knocks and phone calls. Um, the overwhelming majority of people said to me throughout the time that they were pretty happy with where things were. They are concerned about overdevelopment, and I think that's something that is probably common in most mm-hmm. inner urban electorates. Um, but they liked the fact that the government got on and did the things it said it was going to do. Uh, we said we're going to get rid of the level crossing, and we did it. We mm. said we're going to rebuild um, schools in that community, and we did it. Uh, every single election commitment that I took uh, in 2014 uh, was acquitted uh, in full by September of this year. Uh, and I think that that's what people are looking for political leaders to do, to, to fulfil their election commitments mm. and tackle these problems head on, and rather than kick it down the road for someone else. Uh, I think people are sick and tired of politicians saying one thing uh, before polling day, and then saying something completely different or doing the exact opposite mm. after the event. Danny, can I ask you, you just mentioned uh, urban density there and that mm. development is a concern for everyone. There was a policy rolled out quite late by the Coalition about a decentralisation policy for Victoria, you know, talking about fast-speed rail, talking about a state of cities rather than a city-state. Uh, I thought it was the one good piece or interesting piece of uh, policy that the, that the Coalition put out. What's Labor's position on developing regional Victoria? Oh, well, you develop regional Victoria by having very strong rail uh, links and networks, and uh, that's what we've done. Uh, and you also um, develop uh, these communities by having uh, investments in hospitals, because mm. uh, the reality is that the, the local hospital is often the largest employer uh, within these communities. Now, the, the, the Ballarat, sorry, the Bendigo uh, Hospital project, which was started under uh, the former uh, Brumby government, uh, was commissioned under this government. Uh, now, as a consequence of that, uh, I think probably the first time in history you've got more people going into Bendigo each day for work than leave. Uh, so that's that's what government can do. Government can make these strategic investments in these communities uh, to provide that uh, confidence that uh, the private sector can also make a similar investment because they know that that business is going to be there or that organisation is going to be there employing people uh, and providing those opportunities. Danny, thanks heaps for joining us on the phone this morning. Really good to chat, and congratulations on the election victory. Thank you very much. I look forward to uh, the next four years. I think it's going to be uh, a very exciting time where we can continue the forward momentum that we started back in 2014. Thanks. So that was Danny Pearson, uh, the victorious uh, Labor MP for Essendon. And you have been tuned in to Monday Breakfast. This is coming up to the end of our show now. I want to thank both James and Lauren for all the work they put uh, into this show this morning. They had a lot of guests, a lot of uh, 
work to be done beforehand. Uh, and thanks to everyone for tuning in. Be aware that next Monday, uh, in uh, solidarity with International Day of People with a Disability, all day on 3CR to be uh, people with a disability broadcasting from the studio here in Fitzroy. So tune in. That includes uh, the breakfast programming from 7 a.m. all the way through to 7 p.m. So yeah, tune in uh, next week for what will be a fantastic uh, day of broadcasting. And up next, as usual, it's uh, Women on the Line.